we go. Let's open up. I have no time for pleasantries. I mean, good morning, everyone. Open up to Revelation chapter 2. But here we go, Revelation chapter 2. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of the ushers will pass one to you, because we are going to be reading some significant content here. I, I have mentioned to some of you in the preview, some of you have been reading along in the bookmark. You know, you, we've, we've got the layout of the series that the phrase synagogue of Satan is in this reading today. Uh, so yeah, that should pique your interest. If you haven't been reading along, you're going to want to pay attention. And guess what? If you've missed the last two weeks of this series in Revelation, go back and listen to it. Not because it's my greatest messages ever. Wait a minute. Am I having like, you know, Deja vu. Did I say this last week? I'm going to say this every week. We're going to get to the seventh week, and I'm going to say, did you hear the first six messages in this book series, in the, in the book of Revelation? Because if you miss one of the weeks, you're going to get tripped up in this journey. Each one is going to build on the other. So I hope that you've been following along. If you haven't, please go back online today. And for one more week following, we are in this section called the Letters to the Churches. We read one last week that the risen Jesus was directing John to write. Uh, and, and now this week we're going to be jumping into another three before getting to the final three next week. As we jump in, I want to state what will become quite obvious. The church of John's day is struggling. It's struggling. A lot of people idolize the early church experience. But I don't think they're paying close enough attention to the Bible. Because if you read the book of Acts, if you read the pastoral letters, if you read the book of Revelation, you see that, man, it was a good first couple days. That was it. You know, like, I had a great first couple days of marriage on the honeymoon, right? I mean, it was great. But then there's the rest of it, you know, and there's the challenges, and there were the headwinds that we talked about, right? And so it's been a rough middle. It's been a rough middle for a lot of the church from those early first days, all the way up to now awaiting Jesus' return. But smooth seas never made a skilled sailor, right? And Jesus can take the headwinds of the world that we talked about last week and take them and use them to fill the sails that push us toward maturity. So let's dive into these three letters today, even challenging as they are. This is for our growth and our betterment, as Jesus will declare in our study next week. Let's read here together, starting with the letter to the church in Smyrna, verse 8. The verse, this will also be on the screens. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, 
Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pause there this morning. Now you know why I was concerned about not having batteries in my microphone. We've got a lot of ground to cover here in our study this morning. Three letters, right? All with a similar format. There's an address to the church, an opening address, a restating of a quality of Jesus from John's vision of the risen Jesus that's pertinent for the content of the letter. There's affirmations, there's warnings, and the promise of reward for those who heed the words of Jesus. And that promise of reward, it comes in various different word pictures, but it's all the same. That those who overcome and are victorious against the pressures of the world, they're going to inherit the kingdom of God and these various metaphors conveyed. We started light in our reading with Smyrna, as it is seemingly one of the better off of the churches from a spiritual standpoint, that is. Overall, like I said, this is a rough time in the church's history, and there's a lot, been a lot of rough times in the church's history. If you take the average of the letters, you get the first letter and the seventh letter, which are the most negative. They're just outright negative. The second and the sixth, which are the most positive. And then, you know, the third through the fifth are medium bad. So I'm not a math major, but you take the total average, and we're at medium bad. Okay? So, so we started light, but this is one of the exceptions in, in the whole discourse that Jesus has with these different churches. From an earthly perspective, they are not better off. They are undergoing tribulations and trouble and persecution. They're experiencing poverty. Even as Jesus reminds them in verse 5, they are rich. They're not Orange County rich, but spiritually rich, a type of wealth that exceeds the value of material wealth. Not a lot of people understand that, especially not here in Orange County. We're going to see the opposite next week, and we can start talking about our hometown but even though they are rich spiritually, that doesn't eliminate the hardships that they're really undergoing in the world. It seems part of the affliction the church was experiencing came in the form of slander 
from this local congregation of Jews, which Jesus says are not Jews, but actually a synagogue of Satan. That's in verse 9. And that's a hot take. Can we all agree that's a hot take right there? You read that and you go, is Jesus an anti-Semite? You know, is this a Kanye-esque type Twitter scandal right here that we're falling into? I realize, you know, next service is being recorded. I've got to be very careful here. But it doesn't take a seminary degree to recall that Jesus was a Jew. John, who's receiving this revelation from Jesus, is a Jew. So it's not their ethnicity in itself that causes them to be associated in Jesus' mind with Satan. Nor is it their ethnicity or our ethnicity that absolves us from association from the influence of the devil. It's neither here nor there. So why is it then that Jesus calls them a synagogue, basically a church of Satan, that they're existing alongside? Well, as I mentioned last week, the Jews were the only nation among the nations the Romans had conquered that were exempt from having to offer sacrifices and offerings in the temple to the Roman emperor, to Caesar. They asked for that exemption and they were granted that exemption. And Christians were sort of grandfathered into that for a period of time because they were basically invisible to the Romans. They couldn't distinguish the Christians from the Jews until a period of time in the future when hostilities had obviously increased between the Jews and the Christians, likely resulting from competition and people leaving the synagogue, accepting faith in Jesus, that led to the Jews starting to rat on the Christians and say, wait a minute, these people aren't among us. They're a completely different thing. And because new religions were not allowed in the Roman Empire, the Christians were then forced to uh, recant their testimony and their exclusive worship of Jesus through a forced offering to Caesar. If they didn't go along with that, well, then there could be economic re re repercussions. Maybe you were kept from trade. Maybe you were kept from certain business dealings. Thus, their poverty. They were possibly imprisoned and maybe even put to death. So, in response to these events, Jesus says in verse 10, don't be afraid. Of what? Well, there's a lot going on here. Of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. You know, two items of this persecution are worth our consideration. Number one, we have reference to Satan's power and influence in the world leading to their literal imprisonment. So this is another place in the Bible where we're aware of the fact that Satan has influence and he has power. He has practical power. And it can lead to their imprisonment. So Satan works his ends in the world. This is like his playground in many ways, the Bible conveys. And yet we have this truth that God works Satan for his ends, which are to our strengthening. Satan's putting them in prison, but God's using it as a test to strengthen them. There's going to be more on that later in our study in the book of Revelation. Second, we have this reference to this persecution that they're going to undergo lasting 10 days. Some would take this to mean like a literal set of events, 10 events of persecution that are going to happen at this time. Some people link it to 10 Roman emperors of persecution. I see it as a metaphor akin to the testing, the 10 days of testing that Daniel and his companions experienced in exile. I told the story of Daniel already, you know, in short, but not in its fullness. Daniel was one of God's people. He was a, of the royal household of the Israelites when God's people were conquered by Babylon. 
And he was sent with his companions into exile and was put in service of the Babylonian king, this foreign king. Now, when he was welcomed into that setting, he refused and his companions refused to eat the royal food served at the Babylonian king's table because it says that it would defile them. Now, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with a nice ribeye steak. A nice ribeye steak is just fantastic. But why did they avoid eating this food? Well, it's because likely this food being served at the royal table had some sort of involvement in ritual sacrifice to foreign gods. So they didn't want to be defiled spiritually. So they were put to test for 10 days. They said, if we abstain from eating this food that's been sacrificed to these idols, to these foreign gods... I bet you come back and look at us, vegetarians, and we're actually stronger than the rest of you all at the end of that period of testing. And it turns out that was the case. And they were, of course, put in service in the Babylonian king's court. The road that Daniel was walking in a foreign nation, experiencing all those pressures around him, having to abstain from these practices and be tested, it was a bumpy, it was a rocky road that Daniel had to undergo, but he was faithful, he was persevered, he overcame, and so saw victory. So also the Smyrnians, that's just a great word anyway, you know, try it out later, don't say it now, are going to face those same pressures for a time in a foreign land, but they too have to stick to their guns. And get through the same test that someone like Daniel had to go through. Be faithful, Jesus says in verse 10, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. So hold up for a second. Let's pause. Because we went down a rabbit hole of persecution for a few moments. And I was explaining those different elements. But I want to remind you at the outset, the bookends of this are do not be afraid. Of what? the satanic imprisonment, the 10 days of cultural testing that they're going to undergo, and possibly even being pushed to the point of execution. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. I mean, this stands in contrast to the sort of conversations that I have with my brothers and sisters in the here and now. I hear all kinds of fears and concerns about what might take place in our society, in our culture, in America. It's not even things we're assured of. It's like things are kind of moving in this direction, and if they continue to move in this direction, I have all these fears and I have all these concerns that these are the things that are going to happen next to us. And, and so we carry these fears about things that might or might not happen. And here Jesus is saying, do not be afraid of the things that I'm telling you. You will suffer. It's like the difference between me, you know, going on an airplane ride, which I haven't done in three or four years, this is not going to be good for me when I finally do, and having this existential fear, right, and concern that it might go down in a blazing ball of flames. You know, like that's an existential fear that I have that I carry with me. Oh, maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not, and I'm afraid. There's the difference between that feeling and Jesus literally telling me, do not be afraid, your plane is going to go down in a ball of fire. That's what, it, that's what it is. He's promising them suffering. He's telling them how bad it's going to be. But what is Satan's worst? What is death to Jesus? He who died and came to life again. There's a reason why he refers to himself that way in this letter to the Smyrnians, right? He who died and came to life again says, I will give eternal life to you as your victor's crown. Everyone in the world dies once. 
But you should be then concerned about the second death of finality that Jesus alone holds the keys to. As we turn to Pergamum, the warnings match it up a few notches. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword of a tongue is the one who speaks to them. Like I said, we're starting to get medium bad here. It's the third letter. And the usual format's implied. We start a little softer, right? Jesus is calling for change, but he starts soft. Starts with an affirmation. This is good for you. If you're going into a confrontational conversation with somebody, start with an affirmation. Jesus always seems to start with an affirmation. You know, he says the Pergamumites, they're all just great to say. You can just throw it on there. They've apparently got the deck stacked against them. They live in Satan's playground, literally Satan's playground, the city where, verse 13, Satan has his throne. Apparently, Pergamum is Greek for Las Vegas. That's my personal feeling here. No, but just kidding. What, what in the world is the reason why this place is you know, hosting Satan's throne? Well, there's a variety of things in the background of the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was the first city in the Roman Empire to offer sacrifices in worship to Caesar, to deify him as a god, and they were very proud of that. They were the patron city of Caesar worship, and they had a couple temples. They also had a temple to... Zeus, the god of the father of all the pagan gods, right? And they also had a temple to the god of healing, whose image was a snake. So maybe it's the sum total of all of the temple worship and idol worship that's going on, whatever the case. These Christians have not caved to the point of renouncing the name of Jesus, even when Antipas, the faithful witness of Jesus, somebody who stood up for their faith, was ultimately executed in the city. Nevertheless, they're holding to the name of Jesus does not mean they are without spiritual compromise, for there is a faction among them that are being led astray by the influence of one individual called Balaam. Was this guy's name literally Balaam? Like in Thyatira, Jesus refers to Jezebel. Was it literally a woman named Jezebel that was leading the communities astray? No, these names are symbols. They are representative. It's like they're the original Karens. You know, I feel terrible. I feel terrible. I didn't do this, guys. Don't blame me. But society has decided to say that a Karen is somebody who's entitled, right? And they, they step way outside their bounds of entitlement. I, I don't make it up, guys. It's, it's sad. We should reverse course. Karens are welcome here. All Karens, you know? Better than being a peeping Tom. You know, how did you get associated with that? I don't know, but I, don't, I won't stand for it any longer. All the Toms are welcome here. But I'm trying to say that's the same thing going on here. These names are representative of individuals from the Old Testament. They have a false prophet and teacher like Balaam, whose story is told in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. In short, he led the Israelites astray in the Old Testament for, you know, what was his motivation here? What, what could possibly motivate someone to spiritually corrupt a group of people? Huh, financial gain. It's always financial gain. You know, there's always something to be gained when you're leading God's people astray. And that's what Balaam was doing. And now they've got somebody just like Balaam in their community. And the result of this individual's influence, just as Balaam's a thousand years before this time in Pergamum, is spiritual adultery and or sexual immorality among the Christians, both of which are implied in the language. Apparently, he was saying that, you know, you can go to church and you can be a Christian and you can also go visit those temples and engage in their meals. 
So this was like breaking that exclusive bond of worship with God, similar to like adultery in a marriage. That's how it's often pictured in the Old Testament. And likely along with that, feasting and getting drunk and participating, there was often sex involved in the rituals. So it's an all-of-the-above sort of description. Jesus says to the Christians, he's writing to the church, he's saying, change your ways. Verse 16, or I will come to you and fight you, fight them with the sword of my mouth. Would Jesus literally physically come to them and fight them? Is that what he's saying? Or is this like an empty threat like dad, you know, in the front seat of the car? I'm going to pull over, get back there and get you. Like, like, was he going to appear to them and start, you know, slaying them? With this sort of a tongue, like, what do we get here in this image that Jesus is giving us? Well, I think, again, it's more insight, spiritual insight into our material world. That's what the book of Revelation is so helpful for. Just as Satan did not literally physically sit on an actual throne in the middle of the city of Pergamum, yet that city was under his rule and influence. It's like he had a throne there. So Jesus isn't literally going to reappear to them to fight them with the sword of his tongue, but it's likely he's going to send prophets. He's going to send pastors that are going to correct, and they're going to speak the actual word of God, and they're going to put these guys in their place. You know, interestingly, both names, Balaam, and it also says they're, you know, sort of entertaining the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Nicholas and Balaam, both names mean one who overcomes the people, one who dominates or consumes the people. Jesus is saying he will not contend with an influence that rules and exploits his people for their own gain. Now, for those who jump off the Balaam bandwagon, Jesus says in verse 17, he will give hidden manna and a white stone with a name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. These, again, are different metaphors and images of receiving the kingdom of God. Manna is the food of God. It's like, don't go to the banquet of the culture and go eat at their feasts. Step outside that, and maybe you're rejected socially because you're not going to eat there. You're going to gain entrance to my banquet. I have food for you. You know, this white stone was an image in the Jewish culture of pardon. If you wanted to cast a vote of pardon, you give a white stone. If you wanted to give a special invitation to an event, it was a white stone. That was the white stone of entrance. So by not participating and not being accepted in the society where everyone says this is the way you're supposed to live, everybody participates in these behaviors, you're getting rejected, guess what? I'm giving you a stone of entrance into a different community, a different kingdom that is eternal. The new name that's written on it, it's a change of identity. And anytime the Bible talks about a change of name, you got Saul to Paul, you got Simon to Peter. It's like they had a whole different life on the other side of getting that new name. So every single one of us through faith in Jesus is going to enter into the kingdom of God that's eternal and so receive a new name that's going to be a totally different phase, a fundamental change of who we are. That's all great news for those who repent. But Thyatira is going to need that same message because their situation was not all that different from Pergamum. Though it's not Balaam that was leading them astray, but a woman, Jezebel, is bringing the compromise. Jesus, again, we're medium bad here, the one with fire in his eyes. He sees their deeds and knows they are actually doing more than they did at first. And yet this Jezebel, 
like the Israelite queen of the Old Testament, whose story is told in 1 Kings chapter 16, is guiding God's people into idolatry and immorality. Jesus says in verse 21, I have given her time to repent. This may mean that there were those who felt a sense of conviction to go and correct this woman who was leading God's people astray, but she did not listen. She rejected that correction, and as a result, there's now going to be immediate judgment. God can enact immediate judgment in the world. He doesn't just have to wait for heaven. And there's some scary things that are said. She's going to suffer. So are those who associate with her. And I quote, her children will die. Their children will die. Is this a literal consequence Jesus brings through their sexual sin that's implied? Is this illness? Is this disease? Or is this metaphorical? We can't be sure. But judgment is coming, for Jesus states that he searches the hearts and minds and he repays each according to their deeds. Not a lot of emphasis on the actions. Not a lot of emphasis on the deeds of Christians in a lot of Christian circles. But you can't get through the book of Revelation without seeing the emphasis that Jesus places on the way that people are actually living. How does our faith and deeds work together? What is the place of our actions? You know, the Scriptures are clear. Our actions cannot earn us heaven, for none of us is perfect. We all rely on the grace of God. It's only through faith in the saving work of Jesus upon the cross that we have access to the rewards that are laid out in every single letter. But if we trust in the work of Jesus, if we have faith, James chapter 2, verse 26 reminds us we must have actions that align with that belief, or just as the body without the soul is dead, so our faith without deeds is dead. So participation with this system of idolatry, worshiping other gods and casting off all morality and not listening to and heeding Jesus' gracious calls for them to change, that would all indicate that Jezebel and her followers, their faith is as good as dead. Remember, these are Christians in name. Jesus is writing to the church in Thyatira. So also we must recall that there is people in the church of America who claim the name of Jesus, but whose deeds and actions and heart and lack of repentance indicates that they are Christians only in name. They are but pseudo-believers. Jesus will divide. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. To the goats, there's judgment. For the sheep, verse 26 says, the promise to rule over nations and share in the authority Jesus received from his Father, along with the emblem of the morning star, a reference to the image of Jesus' conquering rule. Before we close out, I want to step back and really survey the entire scene because, again, we can get lost in the details. We can look at all the pieces of the Legos but not put the full picture together. I want to step back and explain the setting the church was in before we get to our own applications and our own takeaways. The Roman Empire had, by way of violence and conquest and oppression, created a culture of excess and indulgence, of riches and immorality filled with temples to various gods. It was a culture highly tolerant tolerant of various lifestyles and beliefs. As long as you were also tolerant and played along. If you went against the narrative of the Roman Empire, the morals, and tried to claim any other truth than those sanctioned by the society, you were, very similar to today, canceled. 
You were removed from social life. You were removed from commerce and trade. You were pressured to rescind your beliefs. You were thrown in prison and possibly even executed. Those pressures exist even today in our culture and around the world. Though they may not manifest to the same degree that they did in the Roman world here in America, they still exist here and they do exist around the world. What I'm trying to say is the book of Revelation is just as relevant for Christians now as it was back then. More Christians were killed for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. That's stunning for us who live kind of cloistered off and insulated and in our own narrative, right, of how things are actually going. But let me tell you all that to say, the book of Revelation has importance for us. It enlivens us to realities that apply now. So number one, I want us to know, I want us to take away from this study this morning that first of all, we live in the midst of a spiritual battle. That is going to be deepened and deepened and deepened every single week of this study. We live in the midst of a spiritual battle with Satan and Jesus both at work. We are in the world right now. We are not in heaven. Like for Daniel, this is Babylon. This is the foreign nation. I don't mean America. I mean the world is the foreign nation and our home is the kingdom of God. This is Babylon, not the kingdom. There may be benefits that come along with being in a nation that supports the freedom of religion, but believing we are in an inherently Christian nation may cause us to take for granted the idolatry and the immorality that is all around us. Whereas back then, the false gods were represented in literal temples. You know, people seeking success and wealth and healing and you know, every good fortune, and then going into the temple and they're offering their animal and then they're, you know, feasting on it together and then the ritual goes wherever it goes. You know, that, that was so overt in the ancient world. Now, that idolatry and that immorality is simply embedded everywhere. It's all around us, but it's like it's invisible to us because it's just become part of the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in. It's like the difference between gangrene on a limb like when you have gangrene on a limb, you go, oh my gosh, I better get that looked at. You know, and if I need to, I'm going to remove my arm. Like I can see it for what it is. Like back then you could just walk down Main Street and see it for what it is. And there's still some countries around the world where you can see it exactly as it is. But it's like the difference between that gangrene on a limb and in our society, like a virus. A virus is unseen, but it's all throughout the body, you know we got to wake up to the spiritual reality. If you view pornography, you know, it's very easy to think this is just a material sin. This is just a material error. And, and to not apply anything else, any more meaning to that. But do you understand, if you really consider the industry, the system that drives pornography in all of its various ways, it is spiritually evil. The, the wealth, the greed, the oppression that occurs, the immorality. You know, you think, oh, it's just this physical mundane thing that I participate in, right? But you're entering into a temple of foreign worship. 
when you enter into that practice, when you're complicit with that system, you can view the world in a very material and physical way, but do you understand the spiritual implication? This is a spiritual battle, and Satan is at work in this world. Jesus is at work in this world. You can think, you know, things are very material and mundane. You say, oh my gosh, I just couldn't get to church this Sunday. There's a lot of other things going on. You know, oh, I had more kids' sports on Sunday. It's just an inconvenience. Couldn't get there. This is one of the means that Jesus utilizes to meet with his people for believers to strengthen each other. This is a spiritual activity that you are engaged in, not just a practical activity. Who in the world scheduled kids' sports on a Sunday? Driving through the sports complex. When did our society decide that we would do that? Because half of all kids are going to grow up in a divorced household, and the answer for our marriages is more kids' sports. Like, it's a very subtle thing. It's very pervasive. I'm, I, who do you say is the one who's evil? You know, the, the parents that take their kids and want them to be involved in the sports or the people who are coaches for the teams or leading the programs? No, but it all adds up. It all works together to keep us from the things that build us up, the word of Jesus, the voice of Jesus, Christian community, and the things that will tear us down and our decay for our soul. I said living in the world, living in Babylon, which is what this is, is like facing constant headwinds. You know, I, I worked with cement this last week. I was pouring some cement countertops, got some on my hands. It's like acid on your hands. I didn't realize, again, just how much it pulls the moisture out. I got a little, I got turtle skin for a hand. And I mean, it's all red. My nose is bleeding. Every little kid that came up to me, your nose is bleeding, your nose is bleeding. I love kids. They just point out any flaw that you have. All the adults are like, look great today. The kid, your nose is bleeding, your nose is bleeding. It's, it's like... It was like acid. I actually had a dream last night. I went to bed. My hands were just throbbing in pain. And I had a dream. I was in literal acid, a bath of acid, because that's how my hands felt. That is the corrosive spiritual environment that we exist in in this world. You have to realize it. You have to be sober-minded about it, but I don't say that to take you to the next step that a lot of people will take you to, which is fear. But just because that's our environment does not mean that we fear. It doesn't mean we run. It doesn't mean you go build a bunker out in the middle of nowhere and wait for Jesus to return. You remain right where you are. You work for Jesus right here, just like Daniel in Babylon. You know, he was put to the test. And he abstained from the practices of the culture that he was forced into, and he was stronger for it. And when he came to the test later on, he was thrown into the fiery furnace. He was thrown into that bath of acid, right? And guess what? He was not burned up because Jesus was with him. And so it's not just Satan at work, and it's not just the pervasive nature of spiritual evil that's, that's going on around us. Jesus is present with us, and he comes to visit with us, and he comes to strengthen us, and he comes to give us a word that is going to make us victorious and faithful. He can take those headwinds and turn them to power our strengthening and our maturity. He can keep us from being burned up in the fire. 
but there are those who want to lead us to the fire. False teachers in the line of Balaam and Jezebel operate today. That's the second thing I want you to know. Three out of the four churches' letters that we've read so far reference false teachers, so they must be plentiful. And there are teachers in the line of Balaam and Jezebel that operate today, guiding God's people toward compromise. Friends, you know this. People love to rule other people. And one place to rule people is in the church. Everyone has their own motivations. For Balaam, it was money. For Jezebel in the Old Testament, it was power. But be watchful because the bait for God's people is always the same. Guys, you can have your cake and eat it too. That's the bait that Balaam gave. That's the bait that Jezebel gave. You can be a Christian and have all the fun everyone else gets to have. God will make you rich. Fill your life with endless pleasure. He's going to remove any moral bounds that are holding you back. The message can match your desires. And bonus points, it's not going to offend anyone in the society around you. Jesus says he will fight against teachers like that with the sword of his mouth. And so we must long for his voice. We don't need someone to rule over us. Not a Balaam, not a Jezebel, not anybody else. Because we have ears that want to hear the Spirit speaking to the church. We have ears that want to hear the word of Jesus alone, which is the word of God, which is his testimony. We need to hear his voice because the temptation for us to succumb to spiritual compromise is still very real. That's my final point. The temptation for us to succumb to spiritual compromise is still very real. For the early believers, it was just as simple as an additional offering to Caesar. Hey guys, what's the big deal? If Caesar isn't even really a god, then what does it even matter that you're going to offer a sacrifice to him? You know, just, just offer the sacrifice and you can go right back on believing your hocus pocus that you guys believe. It was that simple. Just compromise. You know, hey, just show up at the Temple of Zeus. We're having a party. It's the feast. It's the holiday. If you're not there, everyone's going to be suspicious about what you think. You know, for us, it can be very subtle, that temptation to compromise. Maybe we just don't carry the name of Jesus. We hide away from the name. We don't self-identify as a Christian. We don't want anyone to out us so that we're known as a Christian because we're afraid of the retribution. Maybe compromise for you is you've gone up the ranks in your company, and now you're complicit with the unethical practices of your company. Now you know what's built your company, and now you're just participating in that system. And that's another way that you're just compromising your faith. Maybe it's allowing there to be secret sin in your life and saying, oh, you know what? It's not anything I really need to address. This isn't really representative of a spiritual battle. It's just a simple weakness. It's a compromise. Jesus has called you to repent, to change. Maybe that compromise is avoiding cancellation in our culture by approving of the sins that it is now approving of. Jesus says, I'm giving you time. I'm giving you time. Hear my voice. Don't take this time for granted. Have ears to hear my call to be victorious, to be a conqueror, and you will receive that life as your victor's crown. Let's take a posture of prayer this morning. We want the ears to hear what Jesus is saying. We need the eyes to see the spiritual battle that's taking place around us. If you just think this is mundane and there's nothing behind all the things going on in our world, all the forces and pressures that work upon you, 
That's false. We're in the world. We're not in the kingdom. There are headwinds. It is corrosive. And yet we're with Jesus. Let's receive the strength of Jesus this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words that you spoke to the churches. Thank you for the words that you speak even now to us. They're words for our strengthening. They're gracious words, even as they seem stern. It's to shake us, Lord. It's to help us see what we sometimes choose to be blind to. There is a spiritual battle that's taking place, and you you tell us not to fear. There is no reason for fear when we know who you are and what you are capable of and what you will do. If you told the church of thousands of years ago that they would suffer the worst of what Satan could throw at them and they should not have fear, then we too can face everything in this message, everything in your word, everything in this world without any fear because we rely on you, your grace, and your leading, your voice, your word. Lord, help us to be victorious. There are those who operate in this world. Maybe there are some brothers and sisters in here that are listening to those who would, like it says in your word, tickle the ear, tell us what we want to hear, help us to just live in accordance with our own desires. Lord, that's not where life is. Life is found in you and in you alone. So Lord, help us fight against the influence of those who are within the church, taking up your name, leading your people astray, away from your truth, away from your commands, and give us the discernment and the ears to hear so that we don't want anyone to rule us. We have you. We have one master, and all of us are brothers and sisters. Lord, as you speak to us, as you rule over our hearts and you search our minds, would you reveal to us any places of compromise? The pressure to conform was so great for Daniel. The pressure to conform was so great for these churches. And there are so many pressures on us even this day. Lord, where are we tempted to accept sin as normal in our life? Where are we tempted to just go with the flow of the society around us because we don't want to be rejected? Acceptance by the world is rejection in your kingdom. Rejection by the world and its design is entrance into your banquet. We don't need to be in. We don't need to be included in anything else other than the great wedding feast that's depicted here in this book. We want to join with you. So, Lord, strengthen us. Lord, speak to us. Let us be those who have ears to hear. Let us those be the ones who have eyes to see. Where is that threat of compromise in our own life? Jesus, speak to my brothers and sisters. And if something is revealed, it is your grace to reveal it, and it's your grace to correct, and it's your grace to restore. Restore us to life.